1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five star review and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com/slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P A T R E O N.com/slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this, Paula Schleiss.
0: Hi, everybody. Last week, I started working on a 10-minute mystery about a murdered Ohio woman whose remains had been found in Nevada 45 years ago and who went unidentified until just this month. But in researching that case, I came to realize that the forensic genealogy lab that solved her mystery had done the same for at least seven Ohioans in just the past year. Mostly, they were people who had been killed in other states. That's what led to this two-part series, looking at the successes that Othram Labs have had over the past 12 months or so. There are other labs doing similar work, and we've covered many of their cases in previous episodes. But for this week, anyway, we've been focusing on the puzzles that fell in Othram's lap and the closure they have given to families around the state who no doubt once thought they would never learn the fate of their missing loved ones. In Part 1, we recounted the stories of three cases. Tonight, we've got four more. So, let's get started. In 2015, Ohio law enforcement got its first peek at what the brand new forensic genealogy could do to solve cold cases. In one of the country's first examples, inventors of the process took on the case of an unidentified homicide victim who had been found near the city of Troy in west-central Ohio's Miami County. For decades, the young woman had only been known as Buckskin Girl since she wore a distinctive tasseled buckskin poncho when her body was found in a ditch alongside Greenlee Road in 1981. They created a DNA profile for her, looked for possible relations in a public DNA database that is made up of people researching their ancestry, then built a family tree to figure out who was missing. They figured out she was Marcia King, originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, and probably killed as she hitchhiked through Ohio. It was a stunning development, and a whole lot of people took note. One person particularly interested in this new forensic tool was Allie Black, an Ohio man who was missing a sibling. Initially, Allie thought Buckskin Girl might have been his sister, Brenda Sue Black. Brenda Sue grew up in Vindalia, a suburb of Dayton in Montgomery County. After graduating from high school, she moved out west, someplace in California. It appears her family didn't know exactly where. They had last seen her in Vandalia in January of 1980, when she was 25 years old. After that visit, they never heard from her again. When Buckskin Girl was revealed to be Marsha King, the Black family had cause to be disappointed, but they were not without hope. Investigators took a sample of Allie Black's DNA and put it into the National Database for Missing Persons, Namus, as well as the better-known CODIS system used by police all over the country. That way, if someone in the future ever entered his sister's DNA into the system, they would find the link to Allie. It took more than five years, but that's exactly what happened. What Allie and his family never knew was that way back on April 19, 1981, the partial skeletal remains of a woman were found near New Lenox, Illinois, off I-80. No clothing was found at the scene, and there were indications that the body might have been transported to the crime scene after death. For probably an entire year, she lay hidden in the weeds and plant growth. An examination suggested she was between 23 and 40 years old, perhaps five foot four inches tall, and blonde, and that at some point in her life, she had suffered a broken nose. It was a case that stumped Illinois authorities for 40 years. Not because they didn't try. They created a clay facial reconstruction in those early years. Then, in 2014, the FBI did an updated rendering of what she might have looked like. In 2016, they added an age regression drawing to her file, in case the unknown woman was still alive and someone recognized how she would have looked at that time. Over the years, police had compared their Will County Jane Doe to more than 250 missing women around the country, but none of them matched her. Finally, Illinois submitted her DNA for the new forensic genealogy program and, just as planned, though nobody was sure it would truly happen, Brenda Sue was matched to her brother, who had been added to the system. The announcement was made in April of 2022, one week prior to the 41st anniversary of the discovery of Brenda Sue's remains. We'll never know what Brenda Sue was doing in Illinois. But given that it was between her birthplace of Vandalia and where her family believed her to be living in California, one can only wonder if she was killed on her way back home. An even older case was haunting authorities in Arizona where a dead woman had remained unidentified for 52 years. On January the 23rd, 1971, three men were hunting in a remote desert area in Mojave County, Arizona, about 30 miles from the town of Kingman. They became curious about a white, loosely woven canvas sack tied at the top with a rope. Printed in green lettering on the side was Deer Pack Ames Harris Neville County and inside a woman whom the coroner would determine had been strangled to death. There were clues. Her clothes were with her, a long-sleeved multicolored blouse, a long-sleeved black cardigan sweater, burnt orange stretch pants, bobby socks, black leather ankle boots, and a set of brown leather driving gloves. She was white, perhaps 35 to 40 years old, 5 foot 4 inches tall, and 125 to 140 pounds. Her curly hair was dark brown with streaks of gray. Authorities also guessed she was probably married at some point and maybe a mother, She had a long scar on her stomach that could have been from a cesarean surgery and a bone indentation on her ring finger that hinted at a wedding ring that was no longer there. Her nails were meticulously manicured and her clothes described as quality wear. Her hair had the look of a professional salon. Mojave County Sheriff investigators explored several different avenues over the years trying to identify her. Authorities were able to get fingerprints off her, which were sent to the FBI in Washington, D.C., and she had extensive dental work done. As a matter of fact, details were shared in major dental magazines around the country, hoping a dentist might recognize work that he'd done, since that work had cost probably $2,100 in 1971 currency. The state even went as far as to pull the applications for all 5,000 bow hunters who had applied for licenses since the woman had been killed near the end of the December 1970 bow hunting season. All the married hunters were asked to produce their wives for questioning. Meanwhile, they combed through missing persons reports from Arizona, Utah, Nevada, California, and they contacted the Museum of Northern Arizona to find an artist who could use the woman's skull to create a sketch of what Mojave County Jane Doe looked like. None of this brought investigators closer to figuring out who she was, and the unnamed victim was laid to rest in an unmarked grave. These kinds of cases are often forgotten by the public, but in truth, unidentified bodies often remain a thorn in the sight of investigators, and Jane Doe's file was passed through generations of detectives. In this case, it was a matter of waiting for technology to catch up. In 2022, a crowdfunding campaign was set up to raise the money necessary for submitting Mojave County Jane Doe's DNA for the forensic genealogy process. The sheriff's office contributed $1,000 and the wider community donated the remaining $6,500 that they needed in just five days. Othram got the case and went to work, building a family tree using distant relatives that were identified in a national database of Ancestry program users. Then this year, on January 24, 2023, Othram cracked the case. The woman was Colleen Audrey Rice of Portsmouth, Ohio, along the Ohio River. Colleen was born in 1931 to parents James and Flossie Rice. She attended Portsmouth High School, and in 1946, at the age of 15, she married a man named William Davis. Not a whole lot more about Colleen is known. She was estranged from her family. Nobody knew how she ended up in Arizona. And from articles this past January... Authorities had yet to determine if she indeed had any living children, as that cesarean scar suggested. But finding Colleen's name is just half the battle. The Mojave County Sheriff's Office is now on the hunt for Colleen's killer, a job that will be made all the harder without more details about Colleen's life in 1971. I found an article in 1971 in which Sheriff Floyd Cisney said his experience as a veteran cop had him believing the woman had probably been killed by a husband and that somewhere she had kids wondering where their mom had gone to. But however it happened, he was confident they'd learn the truth. He said, "Time has a habit of solving murder mysteries." Well, in this case, Time amounted to 52 years, and that's only half the mystery. We'll have to wait to see if they solve the other half.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the Filet-O-Fish Sandwich all day.
0: It's 4.30 p.m., Tuesday, October the 18th, 1994. About five miles south of Greenfield, Indiana, a man stops his car at a bridge that crosses Brandywine Creek on County Road 500. He gets out to relieve himself. As he takes in the view, he sees what he first believes to be a deer carcass lying alongside the creek down below him. He didn't have to venture closer to realize it was not a deer. He jumped into his car and sped off to the nearest phone where he dialed 911 and reported the find in a frantic voice. The Hancock Sheriff's Office responded. Standing on the embankment, Sheriff Jim Bradbury could see it. The sprawled legs, the sunken hull of a torso the curve of a partially mummified cranium. But being late in the year, it was already starting to get dark. Bradbury didn't want to overlook anything. The morning light might reveal a clue that would be lost in dusk. So he ordered the body to be left right where it was, cordoned off the bridge, and posted deputies to stand watch through the night. At first light, A forensic entomologist arrived on the scene and collected maggots from the body. Then, every morning and night for the next 30 days, a deputy would record the temperature at the spot where the body was found. By monitoring the temperatures and the development of the insect larva, the entomologist calculated that the body had likely been at that location for five to six weeks. The body was so badly decomposed, deputies initially told reporters they thought it was a young male. But it was a woman, white, between 30 and 50 years old, 5 foot 4 inches, with really short cropped brown hair. A dentist asked to examine the victim added that she had bad teeth and her dental enamel hinted that she drank a lot of coke. The only clothing with the corpse was a dark green Disney t-shirt featuring Mickey Mouse in his role as the sorcerer's apprentice in the movie Fantasia. But there was no identification with the body. The man who called in the discovery had not identified himself, and early stories carried a plea for him to come forward to speak to authorities. He quickly did, though he was never publicly named, and police ruled him out as a suspect. Authorities focused on missing people in Indiana, turning to the state and other agencies to compare details, but found no one matching the description of the woman. Neighboring states also called in to check their missing people, including several from Ohio, but again, no match. They also contacted Disney officials to ask about that T-shirt. They learned it had been out of production for three years. They went as far as to call a distributor in Kentucky who pulled a silk screen from their files and remade the shirt so detectives could show it and circulate pictures of it. The original shirt was not suitable for public display, but the hope was that someone who knew the victim would at least recognize the distinctive design. Still... No one came forward. The body was next transferred to the University of Indianapolis, so experts there could study the remains for any other clues, including a potential cause of death, which they did not have. But a month later, news reports said the condition of the remains did not allow pathologists to determine how the victim died. The sheriff speculated that the woman might have been strangled by the T-shirt because it was found around her neck. The lack of other clothing suggested she had been sexually molested. The following year, Sheriff Bradbury learned about a biology professor at West Texas A&M University who had done a computer reconstruction of a homicide victim. When the victim was identified, the computer drawing was spot on. Bradbury called and asked how much would it cost for the professor to take their case. The instructor said nothing, just bring him the skull. So, in February of 1995, Bradbury set out for Texas with the skull wrapped in foam rubber and packed in a box. A couple of weeks later, the sheriff received a computer-generated face and head to share with the public. Now, apparently, by the end of the year, this single case had made quite an impact on the county. In his final report of the year, the coroner noted that this Jane Doe case alone had devastated his autopsy funds. A traditional autopsy costs about $500, well, at that time, but the coroner had spent $3,000 already in trying to figure out who Jane Doe was and what had killed her, all to no avail. The case was as cold as it could get. It would take another 25 years for this one to warm up. In August of 2021, investigators handed their Hancock County Jane Doe over to Othram Labs, which developed her DNA and began the process of building her a family tree. In October of 2022, they finally had success. The victim was 34-year-old Doreen M. Teedman of Cleveland, Ohio. Not much about Doreen is known. A photo reveals a nice-looking girl whose facial features do resemble that old Texas A&M computer drawing, though that drawing probably didn't help much because the victim's hair was so short, she really looked more male than female. Doreen was last seen by her family in January of 1994, in May of 1996, after a couple of years of not hearing from her, her family reported her missing to Cleveland police. But she could have been anywhere, they acknowledged. She frequently hitchhiked around the country. I couldn't find any interviews with Doreen's family, so I can't tell you anything else about her. But at a press conference about the identification, It was said they were relieved to know for sure, but had long suspected she was dead. One final mystery solved. A few days ago, on June 10, 2023... A family in Edgerton, Ohio laid to rest their loved one, 29-year-old Douglas Lynn Streeter. It had taken 48 years to bring Douglas home. In the time he'd been absent, both of his parents, Richard and Mary Streeter, and a brother, had all died. The only family that remained were two half-siblings. Douglas was born in Bryan, a town near Edgerton in Williams County at the very northwest corner of Ohio. He was better known by the nickname Strut and had attended Bryan High School. In the spring of 1976, when he was 29, Douglas traveled to Florida with a group of friends from Ohio. They reported they'd last seen him in Boca Raton in the area of the Spanish Oaks Apartments. He was never seen alive again. Later that same year, in October, Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office was called to a rural cane field off State Route 824, about an hour's drive from Boca Raton. Three women who had gone to fish in a nearby canal at 10.30 that morning spotted bones in some underbrush. They immediately hightailed it back to their car and went in search of a phone. Authorities found a partially clothed skeleton of a white man in his 20s, about 6 feet tall and up to 190 pounds. He had light brown or blonde hair. And he wore jeans, boots, and a Levi belt, but no shirt. They also found a silver wristwatch with the initials LJ. An examination of the bones revealed the victim had been shot. The sheriff told reporters, The first thing we have to do is identify the victim. Then we can backtrack to find out where he was last seen and who he was seen with. But that step never came. There was no identification on him, and the investigation never turned up a name. In 2022, the remains were given to Othram, who proceeded to extract DNA samples from them and begin the forensic genealogy process. Through this, they learned that the victim in Florida and the missing man from Ohio were one and the same. I couldn't find any stories that explain what happened after Streeter went missing, what police had done in Ohio, or what his friends had to say about his disappearance, or what they were even doing at the time. But we do know his bones were returned to Williams County, and that he's finally been laid to rest near the family who had missed him in life.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to OhioMysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours... Head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.